titling this series, Living in a Frustrating World, Wisdom from the Book of Ecclesiastes. And that is what the Book of Ecclesiastes is about. It's about frustration. Um, It's also about purpose. And of course, those two ideas are linked in the Book of Ecclesiastes. What's the purpose of life? And um, frustration go hand in hand in your life, I think. In mine, they do. There you go. So the first sheet was the scripture passages, which would be easier for you to follow on the sheet than to flip around the Bible because we're going to be in some different places. Um, all right. So, you know, the question that, that, that we start with tonight really is, is there ultimate purpose and does life have meaning? And I really think, you know, the way to get at this question is if I ask you, why are you here in Nashville? And you say, well, you know, I'm here to study, to go to school. But then when I ask, why are you here to study? Why study? Um, It starts to get at the question that, you know, we have to think about ultimate purpose. Uh, I think college is often one of those times where you sort of start to think about, why am I doing what I'm doing? Kind of going on this track. And then sometimes you sort of wake up and look up and you're like, okay, but what's the point of that? If there's no ultimate purpose, if there's no bigger purpose, then it gets really difficult to keep at the task at hand. Um, and so we have this huge dilemma. We want purpose. We need purpose in our life. But we don't want purpose either. This, here's the dilemma. I put it this way. We want to know the meaning of life. But if we find it, then we might have to adjust our purpose to fit the purpose. So we say we want to know the purpose of life. But the fact is, it creates sort of a dilemma. If we come to a book that purports to tell us about the purpose of life, you just may find that you're not in line with that. And so the question is, do you want to know about the meaning of life? Do you want to know about the purpose of what this is all about? The fact is, Christianity in the Bible claims very forthrightly that life does have a purpose, and the book of Ecclesiastes is about that. Yet, I know there are times when we look around and we really wonder about life. And does it really make any sense? We look at our lives. We look at the lives of our friends. We just turn on the TV and we wonder, is there meaning to all this? We see so much pain. We see injustice. So much about life that we don't understand. The way uh, one writer on the book of Ecclesiastes puts it is this, that we're driven to look for a key to life, to make sense of the world the way it is, and yet... It seems at times that this key may never be found. And so does the Bible have anything to say to that? Well, Ecclesiastes is about those kind of questions. Is there meaning and purpose in life? Is there a key to life to be found somewhere? And while a lot of Christians would say, yeah, well, of course, the key to life is Jesus. What does that even mean? And and what does that mean in light of the the life that we see all around us and the life that we're actually living. Does Jesus just make everything fine? Or do we still wonder what's going on and why are things the way they are? Let's look at the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll start with the, with the introduction from chapter 1, and then we'll read the conclusion. And then as we go through this, I'll make reference to some of these other verses that I put on here for you. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, on the little paper I gave you. The words of the teacher, a son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. 
Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There's no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. So that's how this book begins. (laughs) Here's how it ends. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Do you get, the, you get the feeling that the book talks about that a lot? Yeah. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words. And what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to understand this book. What is this book doing in the Bible? And what do you have for us to learn even tonight? We pray that you'd help us. Send your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Walker Percy, the great Christian novelist, said one time in an essay that bad books lie. And they lie, most of all, about the human condition. Uh, My friend Steve Garber wrote a little essay based on that quote by Walker Percy. He says, the same can be said about all uh, human activities. Just as bad books lie and lie most about the human condition, so does bad art. So does bad economic policy. So does bad social policy. There's so many things where lies dominate. And it's not just It's not just out there in the world. There's a lot of bad Christian books and Christian arts and Christian ideas. And where they tend to lie the most is about the human condition. The book of Ecclesiastes is really a challenging book to those Christians and other people who seem to have a difficult time being honest about the mess that sin has made of the world. Even for those who are trusting in Jesus, Christians seem to have a hard time speaking honestly about the mess that sin has made of the world, even for those who trust Jesus. 
See, Ecclesiastes is a needed wake-up call for believers who are tempted to reshape the world into a place where we can go around and pretend that the fall really hasn't happened, or at least if it has, it's not as bad as a lot of other people seem to think it is. It's, it's a book to help Christians not fall into this temptation of thinking that just because Jesus is in my life, everything is fine, and what it means to be a good witness is to always have a smile on. Ecclesiastes sets us free from that. But Christians, you know, struggle with how to interpret this book. I mean, does this seem like a Christian book? Does it seem like the kind of book that would be on the Christian bestseller list? Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, utterly meaningless. If you didn't get it in the introduction, well, I'll say it again at the conclusion. Meaningless, meaningless. Now, we like the very last verse, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That sounds Christian, but what about that other stuff? And Christians, it's not even Christians, the Jews uh, struggled with how to interpret this book as well. And there's lots of different theories that over the centuries have been proposed. I won't get into all of those, but I'll mention a couple. Um, and, and, you know, not only does this book say that things are meaningless, here's another verse, um, Ecclesiastes 9, 7. Listen to this one. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. So people listen to that and say, well, okay, life is meaningless, so go eat your food and drink your wine with a joyful heart. That doesn't seem very Christian, right? And so people have wondered, what do you do with this book? How do you interpret it? How can the Bible say everything's meaningless and then go around and tell you to eat and to drink with joy? So here's what the basic, the two kind of leading ways that people have tried to deal with this book. Uh, the one is this, to argue that the book was written from the perspective of a person trying to make life work apart from God. In other words, this was written by an unbeliever. Either Solomon, who a lot of people, tradition says, wrote this book. He's the son of David and the king that's mentioned here, though he's not named. That's the traditional view. This is at Solomon's in view. Um, some would say, well, this is Solomon. He wrote this when he was in a backslidden condition. There was a point at which he really lost his faith. And he, he thought life was meaningless, and he tried to live that way for a while, but it didn't work, and ultimately he came back to faith, and then he writes this conclusion to try and sort of wrap up the book, okay? So that's saying, you know, that's one perspective. The other perspective is that, that Solomon is actually, as a literary device, putting himself in the place of somebody who believes that life is meaningless. He's looking at life from that perspective so that he can show you that that doesn't really work. Thus, it's really an evangelistic book, Okay? Other people say, say this way, um, that this is really a book that if you want to understand it, what, you know, and this has become more popular even among Christians today, that what you have is you have the teacher, and he's sort of this skeptic, and maybe there was this pre-existing work that were all these skeptical things, and then a Christian or a Jewish believer got a hold of this book and sort of interspersed some good thoughts among all these skeptical ones. And so it's an attempt to sort of show how a Christian would respond to what non-Christians would say, okay? But see, here's the problem. If that was really true about this book, then what do you do with the conclusion? Because the conclusion really rules out any viewpoint that sees this book as the reasonings of a skeptic or an unspiritual person. Very strongly, look at, look at what it said here. The teacher was wise, verse 9, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. He did not write lies. 
He did not write the reasonings of a skeptic or an unbeliever. His words are not needing to be edited or balanced out. Any any interpretation that you make of this book has to be able to make sense of why it can say life is meaningless and at the same time say that these words are upright and true. How do we make sense of that? Well, I think one of the keys is to understand this word that's translated meaningless. Meaningless. It's also in the King James translated vanity. It's a Hebrew word. It's an important word, especially for the book of Ecclesiastes, because it appears all over the place. And it's this word, it's hevel, the Hebrew word hevel. It literally means a vapor or breath. And as you go through the book and you look at all the uses of the word hevel, and you try to understand what does it mean, what's trying to be communicated by this word hevel, there's two ideas that really emerge. Life is frustrating and life makes no sense. Life is frustrating. Right here from the beginning, it says this in verse 3. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Now, what is this phrase, under the sun? To understand Ecclesiastes, you have to understand hevel, which means vapor or breath. And you need to understand what does it mean to be under the sun. A lot of people think under the sun means life apart from God. But I show you, and, and I wrote a bunch of verses here, and I put them down here. Life Under the sun does not mean life apart from God, life with God out of the picture. It means life on this earth after the fall has entered into the world. And and I put a couple verses here for you. Um, Verses, here's one, verse six, Ecclesiastes 6.12. See, I have some verses here on under the sun if you look back at that sheet. For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow. Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone. You see, under the sun is life on this earth, not necessarily life apart from God. The same, down, look, look, skip the big long passage and look at the next one, Ecclesiastes 8, 14 and 15. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. So under the sun involves God. Do you see the, the days that God has given us? He's given them to us under the sun. God is not disconnected from under the sun. God is there. OK, so under the sun means life after the fall has come into the world. And actually, the best way to understand the book of Ecclesiastes is to see that the whole book really is giving you an expanded look at what's happened after the fall. In other words, it's a commentary, if you will, an explanation of Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19. In Genesis 3, 14 through 19, God describes the curse as it's come to men and to women because of the fall. And Ecclesiastes is taking that and building upon that and showing us how the curse is inescapable. Let me tell you a couple of the connections. The mother, the woman, is cursed to frustration as a mother in childbirth with extra pain in Genesis 3, but also with the pain of bringing little sinners into a dark, dangerous world. The fascinating thing is her first baby is born. Her first baby is born. And literally in the Hebrew, I think most of the English translations weaken this. But she says, lo, or behold, the Lord has given me 
The definite article is, is in the Hebrew, the man. In Genesis 3.15, God promises her that even though you will be cursed with frustration and childbearing by more pain coming into that, and even though you'll be cursed and frustrated in your relationship with your husband, your desire will be to rule over him. Even though that's true, the Lord is going to send one, your offspring, your seed, who will crush the head of the serpent. That promise is there in the curse. When she has her first baby, she thinks that he's the one. He thinks that, that she thinks that the one has come who will crush the head of the serpent. She names him Cain. And she says, behold, the Lord has given me the man. Here he is. But it doesn't take long before she realizes that he's not it. The next child she has, she names Abel, Havel. She names her baby Havel. In the Hebrew, it's the same word. She names her child frustration, vapor, breath. She's also cursed to frustration as a wife, like I said. No longer will she be a helper. Now her desire will be for her husband, and it will rule over her, or she will want to rule over him. The Hebrew is ambiguous there. But it's not just the woman. The man is cursed to frustration in his work and in death. He tills the ground. He's going to work. But his work will be cursed and the ground eventually will win. To dust he will return. From dust he came to dust he will return. And one of the interesting things about this is that a lot of people have not noticed that actually the New Testament references the book of Ecclesiastes. Paul in Romans chapter 8 says this, For the creation was subject, subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. Now, that's a very interesting verse. Paul is actually referencing the book of Ecclesiastes there. In the day of Jesus, the Bible, the Old Testament that everybody used was written in Greek. And the Greek word that's translated, that translates Havel in Genesis and also here in Ecclesiastes is this exact word. Paul is quoting the Greek version of Ecclesiastes in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. So Romans 8, 20, where it talks about how the creation has been frustrated. And you know, Romans 8 is where they have all this talking about the groaning. Creation is groaning. Man is groaning. The Holy Spirit is groaning. That is basically saying, that's what Ecclesiastes is about. And Ecclesiastes is saying, that's what life is like after the fall. So it's about how life is frustrating. Life is frustrating because we can never seem to reach our goal. This is what verse 3 is about. Verse 3 says, what does man gain from all his lever? Do we really get anything out of our labor? And then it goes on a bunch of pictures that are illustrating this. I'll just give you two of them. Verse 7, the streams flow into the sea, right, back in chapter 1, but the sea is never full. The streams are frustrated. They're trying to fill up the ocean, but they never fill it up. In verse 8, In verse 9, right, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. In other words, the eye was made to see, but even in seeing, doing the work that it was made for, it's not satisfied. It never gets its fill. Now, of course, these are poetic images, but there are many different ways that the writer is saying life is frustrating. Life has lost the key to itself. It seems like it's not sort of hitting on all cylinders. There's something off about it. And that's the reality of what we experience, right? 
Life is frustrating under the sun. Life is frustrating because we can never seem to reach our goal. Life is frustrating, thirdly, because it often makes no sense to us. One of the most amazing verses in Ecclesiastes is in chapter 3, verse 11. And I think I put it on the back of your sheet, maybe. No, I think it's on your outline itself, isn't it? This idea. He has also, God meaning, has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has set eternity in the hearts of all people. In other words, he's given you a desire and a longing to understand, yet he's frustrated your ability to understand. That's fascinating verse. God has made us to want to understand, but we can't. Life is frustrating. And here's what you need to understand. Even Christians who, while we can understand the big picture, like Paul says a little later in Romans chapter 8, that God works out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, right? We know that. If you're a Christian and you don't know that, you need to know that tonight. And yet the reality is that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that you can figure out how all the things that happen under the sun make sense. Even though we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even though we know in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, still, still, what happens under the sun often makes no sense to us. And Ecclesiastes is really, it's not so much about trying different ways to find meaning apart from God, thinking under the sun is sort of, I'm going to leave God over here and I'm going to try and make life work without him. It's not so much about that as it is about different schemes that mankind pursues to try to create a world where we can live like the fall hasn't happened. We try all sorts of schemes. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says this, This only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. And yet still, we can't straighten out what is crooked. Ecclesiastes 1.15 talks about how we can't straighten out what's crooked, namely, life after the fall. What sort of schemes? These are some of the things we're going to look at in the coming weeks. The pursuit of pleasure and things to distract us from the frustration. Woody Allen one time was asked in an interview, Woody, what do you believe in? He said, I believe in the power of distraction. A lot of us try to sort of create a world or at least a little cocoon where we can pretend that the fall hasn't happened through pursuing pleasure and things to distract us. The pursuit of knowledge is another scheme we go after that Solomon talks about in this book. Uh, And there's a couple different versions of that. Theological knowledge can be pursued as a way to try to avoid living like the fall has happened. But so can cynicism. Cynicism is an attempt to use knowledge to see through everything so that you won't ever be disappointed and you can pretend that the fall isn't really as bad as it, as it is. There's the pursuit of wealth, right? Maybe if I had more money, I could live above the level of the frustration. Money will buy me freedom. There's the pursuit of art and beauty, the pursuit of power, even the pursuit of folly Solomon talks about. Um, all these things, but none of these schemes will work. Life is still frustrating. But we can and we must find joy, even in the frustration. Ecclesiastes calls us, you see, to see life as it really is. It's frustrating after the fall, 
But at the same time, it tells us to find joy in life, even in the midst of the frustration. There's a recurring theme through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's fascinating. It doesn't just recur over and over again. It actually builds in intensity as the book goes on. And I put it down here for you. Um, if you look on the back of the scripture page, if you flip that one over under joy, listen to how this theme develops as it gets bigger and stronger. A man in chapter two, it says a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This, too, I see is from the hand of God. Chapter three, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. And then a little later in that chapter, verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because this is his lot for who can bring Who can bring him to see what will happen after him? But now look in in chapter five. It starts with a behold, with a look at this. Behold, what have I seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. And now in chapter eight, he goes even farther. It's even stronger. Now it's, so I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in all his work, all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. And finally now in chapter nine, it's a command. So first he says, I think this is a good thing. Then he says, look, behold, this is a good thing. Then he says, I commend this. Literally, it says, I praise this. And now it's commanded, go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Right? Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this frustrating life that God has given you under the sun. All your frustrating days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. See? Joy in the midst of the frustration is not only possible, he's not only discovered it, he's commanding it. The the preacher commends and commands the enjoyment of life. And in the book, we're going to talk about this probably the first week after spring break, about this theme of joy and how do you find that in the midst of the frustration. But there's there's a number of gifts that the book talks about God giving us, even in the midst of the frustration, even after the fall. One of them is this, again, that he's set eternity in the hearts of men. Literally in the Hebrew, it says he's gifted or given eternity into our hearts. In other words, even the longing for more, even the frustration is a gift of sorts. It's a gift of sorts. You see, a Christianity that can't make sense of why we love nature and sex and beautiful sunsets and beautiful music and good wine is not worthy of the name Christianity. Because Christianity is not about how the more holy you are, the less you'll enjoy anything in life. God has given good gifts, good gifts to us. And these gifts are signposts that point us to heaven. But they're not just mere signposts that are only good because they point us to something. They're good gifts that God gives us that we enjoy now. Your wife, your work, your food, your wine, all of these things, Ecclesiastes says, are good gifts that God has given you even in the midst of the frustration. And remember this, there's greater joy to come. So does Ecclesiastes tell us about the purpose of life? I mean, it tells us that life is frustrating. It tells us that we're to find joy in the midst of frustration. And yes, it does tell us 
about what we're made for. The conclusion of the matter, what I read from the conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments, right? Uh, Verse 14 says it this way, now all has been heard. In other words, all the schemes have been outlined. And here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In other words, man's purpose before the fall was to fear God and keep his commands. Obeying God's commands is really the focal point of fearing God. They go hand in hand. And this remains our purpose today. It's what we're made for, to fear God and keep his commands. It's important those two things actually go together. Because to fear God is to reverence him. It is to connect him to all things. It's not just to obey a a, a set of abstract rules. That's not fearing God. Obeying the rules, keeping the commands without fearing God is not keeping the commands. Because you're not keeping them in reference to who he is and what he's done. Fearing God and keeping his commands are vital. The fear, the life of fearing God and keeping his commands, I will have to just tell you this, it's not boring. It's beautiful and it's heroic. And all I have to do is say, think of the life that Jesus led. He said, it was, it's my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. Right? This is what you were made for. This is what the beautiful life looks like. Fearing God and keeping his commandments. When I think about fearing God, I think that poets explain it better than theologians. So I put a a little quote from a hymn here. Listen to this. Oh, how I love thee, living God, with deepest, tenderest fears, and worship thee with trembling hope and penitential tears. They love thee little, if at all, who do not fear thee much. If love is thine attraction, Lord, fear is thy very touch. Derek Kidner, um, great Old Testament scholar, said that the fear of God is the fear that puts all other fears in their place. And it puts your hopes in their place and it puts your aspirations and your regrets and everything in their place. Fearing God is connecting God to all things in an appropriate way. But what do we do if we haven't lived that purpose? What do we do if right now fearing God and keeping his commandments is not what our life is about? What if the purpose, again, what if the purpose that God lays out is not the purpose that we're pursuing? Or even if it's the purpose we're trying to pursue, we're not accomplishing it. In other words, how is this fear God and keep his commands, this is the whole duty of man, how is that actually good news? How how are you to walk out of the room tonight and not just want to beat yourself up because, well, great, I found out what the purpose of life is. Wonderful, I'm not doing it. Um, I've missed the whole point. Look at verse 11 of the conclusion in chapter 12. Go back over to that front page for the scripture. This is fascinating. The words of the wise, verse 11, are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. What does that mean? What's a goad? A goad is basically this stick that you will stick a nail on the end of it and you use it to jab your ox in the rear end to make sure it goes. Okay, that's a goad. There's actually, you know, in the old King James, when Saul um, is struck by light, blinding light on the road to Damascus, um, and he hears a voice of Jesus saying, Saul, why do you kick at the goads? It's a lovely image. You know, your life, you think you're doing the right thing. You're really zealous for God. And then Jesus appears to you and says, what you're doing is basically kicking against these nails embedded in this stick. Why are you kicking? Why would you do that? 
Why are you banging your head against the wall? But it's a little more graphic. Why are you making your feet all bloody as you kick against these goads? That's what the words of the wise are like. They're like goads. They prick us. In other words, think about this. God gives wisdom, wise words, to those who deserve death. He lays out, this is the purpose of life, but he's laying it out for people that aren't obeying it, and yet he still tells them what the purpose is. There's grace in that. Right? The shepherd is the one who gives us these wise words. But of course, he gives us more than just wise words, doesn't he? He doesn't just give us advice. He gives us his very son. In John chapter 10, Jesus takes this idea and he says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd not only calls out to the sheep, he does call out to the sheep. They do hear his voice. He does give us the counsel we need. But I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. I'm not like those hirelings that when things get difficult, they're gone. They're out of here. I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep who run after all kinds of schemes rather than fearing and obeying me. Right? So Ecclesiastes is a message ultimately from the God who laid down his life for you. He didn't leave you in the midst of the frustration and just shout down some advice. But he came and he took the frustration He took the groaning in a way that you never have because Jesus did not pursue any schemes ever to sort of check out of the frustration. Jesus is the only one who willingly embraced the full realities of the mess that sin has made in this world. If you think it's difficult for you to turn on the news, how do you think it was for Jesus to see his image bearers broken, abused, being taken advantage of, right? Starving, sick, all those sorts of things. No wonder he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, the scriptures say. So a couple, a couple I'll do this quick, but why do we need the book of Ecclesiastes? Because I really think Ecclesiastes is one of the most important books for people today to grapple with. The first reason is this. Ecclesiastes rebukes modern evangelical Christianity's attempt to live in a sanitized, safe world. Uh, You know, David Brooks, New York Times columnist, talks about how in our culture, in our world that we live in, safety rules are more oppressive than sexuality was in the Victorian period. He says that that the idea, you know, that, that you would do something unsafe and the kind of public scorn that it brings is just this constant, there's this constant underlying message that you would never want to do something unsafe, right? And the, the, one of the things that happens in that kind of culture is you begin to think that the purpose of life is to stay safe. It's drilled into your head from the time you're a little kid. The purpose of my life is to not upset my parents and to be safe and not make them worry, <laughs> right? And, you know, we bring that into Christianity and we turn it into something that exists to make this world a safe, comfortable place. And we co-opt the gospel, which is actually supposed to be this revolutionary force into something that's going to create this little cocoon where we can huddle together and keep the big bad world out there. The modern church desperately needs the book of Ecclesiastes to challenge the scheme 
of trying to carve out a little safe, sanitized world. Ecclesiastes, you see, connects us to real longings, real longings, the kinds of longings that advertisers don't want stirred in you because then you'll never buy what they're offering (laughs) because it'll never satisfy. You know, advertisers love to stir sort of the pseudo longings, but Ecclesiastes gets at the real longings. Christians need to be sobered by Ecclesiastes. Evangelical Christians are not sobered enough about the reality of the brokenness of this world. Part of learning wisdom means being sobered by how serious and how broken and how frustrating life really is and not trying to pretend that that's not true. We need Ecclesiastes to remind us as well that we live in a frustrating world, but God gives us good gifts to enjoy even in the midst of the frustration. And it's not more spiritual to pretend that there are no good gifts. It's not more spiritual to try to close your heart off to all hope whatsoever so that you don't have to live with ache and longing. That's one of the reasons I love the book of Ecclesiastes, because I need to hear that all the time. We also need Ecclesiastes to invite us to a profound connection with Jesus and his suffering, because Jesus is the one who groaned more than you ever will. And the more you understand what made him groan, and the more you see how he didn't have to groan, he entered into the groaning rather than give up on this world that he created, rather than give up on us. And there's actually an opportunity, I think, to come and fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings through the book of Ecclesiastes um, and enter into the groaning. Because even right now, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are groaning, right? Things are not right yet. So I invite you to come back after spring break. Well, come next week and hear about Jesus. And then, uh, (laughs) but after spring break, if you have a chance, now this is good, see, Go back through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's only 12 chapters. It's not that long. Sometime over spring break, maybe even a couple times, read through the book of Ecclesiastes and everywhere it says meaningless, put in the word frustrating and see what that does in your understanding of this book. And then we'll pick up and go on some, hit on some of these schemes, some of these topics in Ecclesiastes after spring break. Let me pray for us.